The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renasola, a top manufacturer and supplier of clean energy equipment, including solar modules, inverters, energy storage, and efficient lighting. With 40 worldwide subsidiaries, the company offers one-stop shopping for all your equipment needs, with next-day delivery. You can see the entire list of Renasola's offerings available coast-to-coast at renasola.us. For the week of July 1st, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to look at the crazy global demand growth coming for solar. If I used the term crazy a couple of years ago, I would have been referring to the yearly ups and downs for the industry. But now I'm just referring to the massive expansion coming for all areas of the globe. We'll chat with GTM solar analyst Adam James about some of our new projections. Then we'll talk about the Supreme Court decision that could jeopardize a major air pollution rule crafted by the Obama administration. And we'll end with an examination of Sunrun's financials as it prepares to go public. We will also tell you something you don't know to cap the show as usual. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me, ready to break it down for us. Catherine's a partner at 38 North Solutions here in Washington. Are you feeling the palpable excitement as we prepare to celebrate another birthday for our country this weekend in the capital city? I am, and I just did the loveliest thing this morning. My father and his wife were in town, and we went to Arlington Cemetery to the gravesite of my grandparents this morning. And uh, it, was, it was just really, it's an, it's an impressive place for anybody who's visiting D.C., whether or not you have loved ones there. It is a must visit, and this is, of course, one of the busiest times of year. Uh, also with us, it is Jigger Shah. He's the president of Generate Capital. Per usual, on the move. He's actually coming to us from the airport in Chicago, one of the busiest airports in the country. So there's a little background noise. But uh, are you there for work or celebrating the holiday with family? What's what's going on in Chicago, Jigger? I'm here for work, but honestly, I could be celebrating this extraordinary week that President Obama had. Indeed. Well, on Monday... Of course, we had a Supreme Court decision that uh, angered some progressives, so we'll talk about that and and talk about the uh, other Supreme Court decisions, I'm sure. Um, Let's turn to our guest, also in the nation's heartland, turning the breadbasket of our country into an ideas basket. It's Adam James, a senior solar analyst with uh, GTM Research who's focused on global demand. He's based in South Bend, Indiana. Adam, how are things in South Bend? Things are great. Thanks, Stephen. And it's uh, great to be here. So you just released this uh, big global demand report that has some pretty weighty projections, 135 gigawatts of yearly installations by 2020. So to put that into perspective for listeners, that's about how much we had installed cumulatively in 2013. And we're probably going to be putting that much in the ground and on rooftops each year in the coming years. A lot of themes to unpack here in this in this report. One is diversity. Um, you know, we've historically seen big demand pockets over the last decade. I, you know, it was in the early 2000s in Japan, then it shifted over to Europe, and then now we're seeing this surge in America and in China. But the market won't be really as it won't be pockets as much as it will be, I guess, a solar blanket by the end of the decade. What does that diverse global market look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the two kind of statistics that I would point to that I think put some weight behind uh, what we're talking about here is, you know, first of all, the kind of non-major markets or emerging markets historically have been about 1% 
of global demand in the past. Um, and what we're expecting in the future is that over the next five years, in cumulative terms, uh, emerging markets, which would include Middle East, Latin America, Southeast Asia, places like that, will account for 17% of demand over that time. Uh, so that's one thing that I think is kind of just astounding, right? And there's a pretty radical shift in the way that we should be thinking about where demand is coming from. The other way you can look at this, though, is how many large markets that there are, are over one gigawatt markets. And, you know, I was looking back and in 2009, there was about one market that had one gigawatt in annual demand, which is Germany. Uh, and then in 2012, there were eight, which is a pretty big jump. This year, we expect nine. But by 2020, we expect that there'll be 16 markets that are over one gigawatt, um, with every continent except for Antarctica having several markets that are over one gigawatt each. So that's a pretty big change in terms of like where demand is coming from, especially when you know it used to be that in Europe or places like that, we had 80 to 90 percent of demand was concentrated just in a few core countries. What do you think is the most compelling market story right now. So you f have followed the Latin American market very closely. You came on board GTM Research focused exclusively on Latin America and have, have moved to uh, broader global demand. Of course, uh, there's a lot of unsubsidized development going on there because of high power prices and the ability to, to sell on the spot market, um, particularly mining operations and, and remote industrial operations. Um, but when you look at Latin America, Asia, Middle East, North Africa, what stands out to you as the most interesting today? Well, honestly, I, I think it is Latin America, actually. I mean, China tends to steal the headlines just because in, in volume terms, it's so significant and, and it is going to be a huge and important player over the next five years. About 20 percent demand is going to come from China alone. But I think that the one that's the most exciting is, is the Latin America region as a whole. Uh, and the reason is, is because I think that Latin America kind of gives us a glimpse into what the future of solar is actually going to look like. Um, you know, there's very few incentives in place. And you have markets like uh, in the Chilean market, where just because there was a combination of kind of high power prices, uh, strong insulation levels, willing capital, and these blue chip off takers, you saw a one gigawatt market basically appear overnight. Uh, and I think that that's the kind of phenomenon that we're going to see happening more and more often uh, as we look forward um, from here. And, you know, the other market that I would, I would kind of point to within Latin America that I think tells a really interesting story is Mexico, where they've had this kind of booming distributed generation market uh, and that I think is really poised to take off at an incredible pace from this point on. And all of that development is being done kind of under just pure net metering uh, without any kind of incentives, really including any kind of tax incentives. Um, and so it's places like that that I think you can kind of use to get a window into what the future of unsubsidized global solar actually looks like. And a lot of those companies today are grappling with the questions that solar companies are going to have to grapple with as they develop a business model around that isn't based or centered around uh, subsidies or incentives. So, Adam, I have a question, because when I look at your charts, it still looks like utility scale installations are going to be the largest seg segment in in terms of volume. So I'm just curious what you're seeing on the utility scale side versus the distributed side. Yeah, that's a great question, too. I mean, the the reason there is, of course, because just large, large projects account for more in, in demand terms and in the markets where we're seeing a lot of the growth, uh, which will be places like China, Japan, the US uh, and India, a lot of the development in those places in, in you know, kind of percentage terms is going to be from utility scale generation. Um, and there is a, there is in some ways kind of a, a different set of factors driving demand and utility, the utility segment versus in the distributed generation market. Um, in the utility market, I mean, you have are going to have some classic 
feed-in tariff markets like China and Japan that are going to continue. But you also have these markets like in India where renewable purchase obligations uh, and kind of bilateral contracts with large industrial offtakers are also contributing towards a larger and larger share of utility-scale demand. Uh, on the distributed generation side, it's uh, I think it's a little bit more capital sensitive in a way. And, and we kind of see that as a segment where the increased access to capital over the next few years is going to kind of light the rocket underneath, uh, underneath that segment of the market and really lead it to accelerate more and more. Um, it is a place where we could really be hugely surprised to the upside because in places like Africa and Latin America, especially um, if distributed generation moves quicker than, than we expect, you could see it take up a larger share of the global pie. So Adam, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what governs the upper end of a market, right? So when you think about the U.S., once you go beyond, let's say, 20,000 megawatts a year, you're actually se severely cutting into existing generation, creating stranded assets, similar to what you saw with the growth rates in 2008, 2009 in Germany. Are you guys using that as a upper end governor for some of these markets? Yeah, every market's a little bit different. And, and I think that one of the strengths of our kind of our, our forecasting, our research practices that we really try to tailor uh, the forecast to the individual country, um, because there's going to be different constraints on markets in different places. Uh, I would say you can start from a perspective of, of just trying to figure out a very big number, which is the total available market for solar. Uh, and there, there are some constraints on that. Um, technical engineering constraints are certainly one factor. Um, but as you mentioned, there's kind of also the existing resource profile in that country. And I think there's some really interesting questions around to what extent solar can cut into the existing resource profile of a country. Um, you know, in places like, and, and here's a place where I think that the kind of the gross story and the net story are going to look a little different in terms of demand. In places like the US and Germany, you have relatively low demand in net terms, you know, 1%, 2%. But what you have in addition to that is pretty serious, you know, gross demand. Uh, if you look at retirements, you know, in, in the U.S., we have something around the neighborhood of 60 gigawatts of coal coming offline. Um, you know, Europe as uh, a, a kind of as a region, I think, put about 30 gigawatts offline last year. And so when you look at the gross picture of, of how much uh, solar demand could take up, um, I think you start getting a much bigger number. Um, the other place where we kind of are looking at this is the extent to which solar is going to displace uh, new capacity additions in wind and natural gas. And there's several reasons why solar could be a more serious player in um, a more competitive player against those two than I think a lot of folks are considering. You know, the first of which is that on-site solar has some pretty big advantages over off-site wind. And so even though there are a lot of cost and uh, other advantages to doing wind, solar, I think, is going to be able to cut into a little bit of the share that people are expecting uh, wind to take in future years or as utilities and resource planners get more sensitive to using solar as a hedge, I think there are times where solar gets chosen purely because of the other values that it provides in cases such as those. So I would say that, that personally, the, the upper bound that I, I would have for solar is probably a lot higher than the ones that we're seeing coming out of a lot of, a lot of other research firms for that reason. I mean, just to clarify a little bit, it, it does seem like you sort of waver back and forth around whether solar is filling in gaps that are created by retiring coal, or whether you think that solar is actually forcing the retirement of coal? Well, I think it's both. Uh, I mean, coal is, is retiring in some cases, whether solar replaces it or not, uh, and due to other kind of regulations and, and things like that. And that's something that will probably pick up speed as time goes on, whether or not solar is what is directly replacing it. But in some instances, solar is absolutely, I think, forcing the closure of of inefficient plants just because of the function that it provides or the value that it provides 
to the grid in terms of being a, a peaking resource. Uh, and it's just, you know, in, in any situation where you have a resource that's providing kind of, uh, you know, zero fuel cost, uh, you know, value to the grid, you're going to get some kind of a price suppression effect. And I think that's probably for the best um, in, you know, in general. The place where it runs into some, some problem is over competing for peaking power uh, against, you know, uh, natural gas and and other resources like that. And also this kind of question around to what extent you need spinning reserves uh, and things like that to kind of provide a buffer between base load uh, and peaking power. That's a place where I think that demand side resources have a pretty large role to play. And so that's another reason why I tend to view the upper limit as being a lot higher, because I think there's a lot more that we could be doing in that in that area and a lot more that we will do in that area. No surprise that China will be the top country by the end of the decade, uh, now a leader in solar installations and will maintain its lead. But help us understand how we should think about China. Go beyond the numbers themselves. You and I have talked about this. There are uh, issues associated with uh, approving the feed-in tariff on the federal level, which causes serious delays for project developers. You have uh, potential credit issues stemming from... um, bad real estate investments. That's a little bit more speculative. You have projects that are not able to interconnect with the grid, projects that have been developed with shoddy panels. There are some major issues in China that you're not seeing nearly as widespread in other countries. How healthy will China's market be when you consider those big numbers in 2020? Is that going to be, are those installations that are going to be actually connected to the grid? Yeah, it's another great question. And with China, it's it's always going to be difficult. I mean, I would consider China one of the most difficult countries to kind of provide certainty about the outlook for. So one of the higher risk markets in terms of, of forecasting risk. And in that it could be way higher or way lower uh, than, than we're projecting. Um, you know, I think that we're a little bit more probably conservative on the near-term outlook for China because of the factors that you are discussing. And and just to spell a few of these out, because these are questions that I think get asked all the time, but don't really get hashed out in any kind of depth. Um, you know, China this year, for example, has a target of 17.8 gigawatts of solar installed, which is, you know, best understood as exactly that, which is a target rather than any kind of a mandate. It does have a practical effect on the market insofar as it, uh, the 17.8 gigawatts is then divided up among various regions, which divide them up among provinces, and then local governments can kind of move forward from that point and start signing PPAs. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, for, you know, just because they have a kind of a ceiling put on their allocations, it doesn't mean that they're going to meet uh, the different targets that they've set by province. And some of the factors that will be constraining it at that point are exactly what you mentioned, you know, the extent to which interconnection can be achieved, uh, the credit profile uh, for the off takers that are signing the PPAs. Um, the fact that there's a lot of changes going on, broad changes going on in the Chinese electricity market at the, right now around energy reform uh, and kind of, you know, intra-province and inter-province balancing. And the one point that I think is kind of the most uh, under-discussed at the moment is just the feed-in tariff structurally and, and kind of the, some of the problems that are going on within the feed-in tariff system itself. On the one hand, you know, the surcharge itself is collected based on assumptions about uh, consumption, uh, you know, by end users, and those uh, estimates have proven to be off pretty dramatically. And so, when you read these stories about kind of weak end demand or like weak, weaker than expected electricity consumption, you should kind of be thinking to yourself, you know, when they say weaker, that means that they have miscalculated how much money they need to be collecting in order to fund renewable energy projects. 
Um, so on, that's one kind of big problem that they're facing. Uh, and that the way that they kind of do that process is by collecting those surcharges from all the provinces, bringing it back up to headquarters, sorting everything out, and then reallocating it, which means that you have already a lot of administrative problems. But in addition to that, there's a portion of the feed-in tariff that projects are used to getting directly from the utility company that's based on the payment for coal. And that payment has recently gone down. So a lot of the predictable cash flow the developers used to have is also kind of under threat. And so, you know, that's kind of one specific example of, of where there are some problems in China. And I think that's kind of a microcosm of some of the things that we're seeing play out across the entire country, that as you deploy, uh, you know, solar at the scale they're looking at deploying solar, you know, when you, you start looking at these problems around transmission and around credit and around how you're getting paid and, and the process around getting paid, those things can really limit the, the kind of development of a market year by year. And last year, we saw that happen where they had a pretty ambitious target and then kind of fell flat on being able to hit that um, after moving the goalpost several times, still fell flat, in fact. Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, looking back to the United States and the investment tax credit um, ending for residential at the end of 2016 and dropping to 10% for commercial and just, you know, how do we make up for that or do we, can we, with some kind of value of solar or distributed generation with rate design or with some way to value uh, distributed generation in the bulk power markets? I just wonder how that stacks up uh, to the feed-in tariff. Well, so one thing when you look at the kind of the big picture here is that, you know, that kind of decline in, in North America is offset by a rebound elsewhere, which is in Europe. Um, you know, we're, we are expecting kind of a resurgence in the European market starting with uh, this year and next. Um, and so from a big picture, you know, that's one thing that's kind of happening is that even while the, the North American market kind of goes up and then down a little bit um, with the ITC, you know, you are seeing other opportunities emerge elsewhere. And I think that's because you have a situation where there's growing interest in solar and, and more capital that's looking, you know, being attracted to solar projects. And so they're going to kind of go wherever the opportunity is. Um, and right now, like, frankly, you know, a lot of the investment that's happening outside of China is, is because it's so difficult to invest in China. So you have this kind of this huge market that's a little bit prohibitive in, in some ways. Um, I think that that kind of will change and probably right around the time that the U.S. market is uh, is facing some of these ITC challenges, the Chinese market will get a little bit more open to investment. Um, and, you know, our, our medium to long-term view is that a lot of the issues I mentioned will start getting resolved. And so uh, what this means for the U.S. market, to some extent, is that I think a lot of the companies who are currently operating at full steam in, in the U.S. will take a growing interest in China and won't be put off as much by problems with the feed-in tariff and things like that. I, I don't. So how does the first solar um, announcement around a dollar a watt in 2017 figure into this? And then also, why the hell is Saudi Arabia number seven when they've so consistently underperformed? Yeah, so I mean, the dollar per watt from from First Solar is is definitely baked into some extent to our assumptions. Um, I mean, First Solar is the lower end of the range uh, cost wise, and it's for utility scale projects only. Um, but yeah, but that I mean, that does play a big role, right? I mean, I, I think that maybe one of the things I should have started by saying is just that a blanket assumption across all of the other things that we're saying here, the lens to view it in is through continued cost declines for solar. Um, and then everything else that we're talking about is kind of like, a, you know, with these cost declines, what else can we make happen? And the fact that there are other things kind of factoring in. So the first solar announcement, you know, I think it really does represent a really good kind of flashpoint for us to look at and say, that's the kind of world that we'll be working in here is where, you know, these large multinational companies are going to be able to install at incredibly competitive uh, prices. 
Um, and then you look at the other end of that too, right? Like what kind of PPAs can you start offering in a world where you have um, potentially, you know, more access to capital, a little bit more stability um, around uh, contracting and things like that in, in more places. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing. Uh, Saudi Arabia, I mean, I'm definitely, I, I understand I've been a, a pretty kind of, um, a, a, I've been pretty pessimistic on Saudi Arabia. And I think for good reason, you know, the, the KA care program was announced and then absolutely fell flat on its face. Um, recent problems with oil, I think, were blamed. But the reality is, is that that program was, uh, was really never propped up the way that it needed to be in order to be successful. And I think oil was kind of a convenient scapegoat uh, in that it had very little to do with why that failed. However, that said, I think that there's probably there's two reasons why we should expect things to improve in Saudi Arabia. The first is because I think that, that a lot of the companies who were seeking to partner with the government through a program like KA Care uh, are now kind of like seeing that that may not be the best route and are starting to kind of charge ahead with or without government support and government capital. Um, you know, in that they have enough regulatory certainty to do that in a lot of cases and just signing direct PPAs with with off takers and working with the Saudi electric company and things like that. Um, and the second point, the kind of like broader you know, context here is that Saudi Arabia really cannot continue to go on without finding an alternative to oil in their generation profile um, with electricity demand rising the way that it is. They have to find a solution no matter what. And uh, and there's no reason why solar wouldn't be one of their top choices to meet kind of to meet that need. Um, so, you know, I think that they just are in this situation where they have both a burning platform and a bright opportunity. And there's very few companies or countries that are in that situation. Uh, and, you know, to restate my first point, you know, I think a lot of companies are going to just be charging ahead, whether or not they're able to ca cash in on those Saudi Arabia government dollars to do so. So how do we define unsubsidized markets? I think that's crucial, because we consider 2018 to be the tipping point for unsubsidized solar. I think Bloomberg New Energy Finance kind of put it out further into the 2020, 2022 timeframe. But it's all within the same timeframe. And everyone seems to think that unsubsidized solar is going to take off and define the market over the coming decade. Are we talking about no subsidies whatsoever? Or are we changing our definition of subsidies? Like help people understand what we mean when we use that term, which I'm sure is probably different based on region? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sub subsidy, subsidization probably as a term is just too vague to be useful when you when you just kind of throw that out there by itself. Um, I think that, you know, the way to kind of like start honing that down a little bit more is, is first by recognizing that everybody, every single resource has some kind of a subsidy somewhere in their value chain. If you take you know, the, the purest definition of subsidy into account. So in, in that world where you want to kind of discount that logical extreme, then you look at, okay, so what would a more reasonable kind of interpretation of this be? And I think that what, when we talk about this, what we're saying we're transitioning away from is kind of direct generation-based incentives, such as feed-in tariffs uh, in, in most markets. Um, so we think that, you know, in places like China, Japan, Feeding tariffs absolutely are a big part of the market, although currently, although we think they'll be phased out for sure by 2020. Uh, but in most other places that we, although we may still see some tax credits, we may still see uh, net metering, even though net metering is probably going to evolve a little bit as well. Um, you know, even though those kinds of things may be in place, uh, we expect that most of the market will be driven just by the raw economics of solar. Um, you know, one exception to this or pseudo exception is the fact that I think that the way that grid operators and market operators are thinking about uh, energy is is changing in, in a very real way. 
um, from, you know, so what I, what I do expect is that we'll see more technology specific reverse auctions, which is kind of a blend between this pure competitive environment and, uh, you know, creating some exceptions for different kinds of technologies. Um, but the reason that those are so important is because if you look at a place like Brazil, for example, if you just have a least cost auction, uh, hydropower is going to win every time. Um, but as the Brazilian government recently learned, uh, just because you have the low, you know, hydro is the lowest cost, it doesn't mean that it always has the greatest value. And in times where there's this kind of massive drought, uh, the government has to rely almost, you know, entire, you know, has to re replace that with fuel oil, which is incredibly high cost. And so in that situation, you know, solar has a value to the grid, even if it's not the lowest cost and it has a hedging value. Um, so I think that that kind of like that system planning perspective is going to become a lot more prevalent in coming years. And that that's driving part of what we're thinking is this unsubsidized wave where, where you're thinking about markets. You're definitely thinking about markets, but you're thinking about those markets in new ways. Uh, and in the distributed generation space, there's a much more direct answer to this question, I think, which is just that the, you know, the basic economics of PV you know, with some financing against retail rates is a value proposition that will be too strong to ignore uh, in the vast, you know, in, in a lot of countries in 2018 and in the vast majority, you know, of, of places that we're looking at solar development by 2020 and, and beyond. Adam James is a senior solar analyst with GTM Research. He is the author of GTM Research's new global demand report. He joined us from the solar hotbed of South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good report. And you have a conference in Mexico you're organizing coming up, right? That's right. Uh, you know, GTM is doing our first international conference, which is Solar Summit Mexico. Uh, it's going to be held in Mexico City uh, in um, the end of January in 2016. So for any of you who are interested in, in taking a little trip down to Mexico in, in the dead of winter, uh, which I know sounds very unappealing, but uh, for those of you interested in that, definitely check out the events page on, on Green Tech Media and uh, click to stay signed up and tuned in for updates. Great. Good luck with that. Thanks for being here. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Okay. A little break here to hear more about our podcast sponsor, Renesola. Renesola has been producing monocrystalline wafers since 2005 and has been manufacturing solar cells and modules since 2008. Uh, the company also manufactures and distributes inverters, LED lights, batteries, and mounting accessories, and it puts all these products together into a bundled solution for solar installers. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by investing in Renesola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And the time that you could save is enormous as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast -coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 worldwide subsidiaries. That means the products you need for your next project will get delivered to you the next day. Start your painless procurement at renesola.us. There was jubilation among progressives last week when the Supreme Court both upheld the national health care law and gay marriage. But only a few days later, the high court decided on another case that knocked progressives down a notch. On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that the EPA overstepped its authority when crafting regulations in 2012 for mercury and air toxic emissions from power plants. The justices in the majority did not rule that EPA cannot regulate these emissions. Rather, they said that the agency had not adequately examined the cost of the rule before deciding to go forward. The case, Michigan versus EPA, goes back to a district court where it will get another hearing in D.C. So how much of a blow is this to the president's environmental agenda? Uh, Catherine, as I mentioned, it does not uh, kill the rule, but it requires EPA to to perhaps go back and conduct 
a new cost-benefit analysis. What's the rub here? Okay, so this mercury and air toxic standards, better known as MATS uh, in short lingo, um, went into effect at the end of 2011. The rule had been finalized, and in 2012, compliance started. And compliance was supposed to be complete by April of 2015. Now, some people got some deferments, deferrals for an extra year. But for the most part, generators have complied already. So there was a lot of compliance already in place. So from a practical standpoint, it won't change the impact of that rule. It was remanded. So the circuit court can now decide whether EPA has to just reconsider how they develop their cost benefits analysis or start from scratch. And I'm sure they're going to consider the fact that a lot of people have gone forward with this. I think on the longer term, the impact would be how EPA in the future does cost-benefit analyses on regulation. And, you know, they have to look at this um, appropriate and necessary regulations and how do they consider cost uh, wherever the Clean Air Act is, men- is mentions it. So I think it'll have a longer-term impact on how they develop rules in the future, but I don't know if it'll have as negative an impact on this particular rule as, as people are, are, are somehow saying. So it wasn't even really the cost-benefit analysis itself that the justices took issue with. It was that they didn't conduct it early enough in the process. Right, right. It's the cost of compliance. And that's kind of tricky to do because it's hard to know what the cost of compliance is going to be until you start, until you decide what compliance means and you start spinning it out. So I think um, that's the tricky part is in the future, how are they going to do it to avoid being in this situation again? Yeah. So the EPA argued, like, we're required by law to regulate these emissions, so we should be able to go forward with the process and then conduct the study as we get into the second stage. Uh, the big issue really is what this does to the clean power plan, the EPA's plan in the works to regulate CO2 emissions um, from existing power plants. A big deal. Um, and the arguments against the clean power plan, uh, one of the arguments was that if these mercury and air toxic emission standards were in place, then that effectively creates the same set of regulations that the, e- that the clean power plan is designed for. And um, if these, if for some reason these regulations uh, are scrapped, then opponents of the clean power plan don't have as much ammo. Am I reading that correctly, Catherine? I, I don't know. I honestly don't think it's going to have a huge impact on the clean power plan. That's just done in a completely different, with a different structure. And it's so much more flexible as to how states implement it. So the states can actually come up with their own decision on how to comply. So I, I don't know. I just see it as a very different way that the rule is even structured. I think it's the most important thing to note here is that this rule is now three years old. Uh, it was crafted in 2012 or proposed in 2012. Uh, utilities have had a, a lot of time to deal with this and they've bought the scrubbers and they've bought the equipment to many of the leading utilities have bought the equipment needed to reduce these emissions. So the rule is effectively underway right now. Yes, and has been impl- implemented by many of the generators already. It it still seems like coal is dead. That basically that coal, you know, according to EIA, is down to thirty percent, and natural gas is up to thirty one percent. And so this doesn't seem like it's going to have any impact on, you know, sort of the death of of coal. 
Yeah, and 70% of the industry is already in compliance with MATS. I don't think, um, you know, the others are set to retire, and I don't think that's going to change that trajectory at all. Well, I think the most important takeaway from the Supreme Court ruling this week is that this does not mean that the regulation is dead. There has been a lot of language out there that the Supreme Court struck down this rule, and they did not strike down this rule. They sent it back to the district court for further clarification for them to consider whether the EPA's cost-benefit analysis was appropriate and conducted early enough in the process as they crafted this rule. So we'll see what the district court says. It could go anywhere. I think the analysis I've read and from talking to folks, they believe that the regulation will still go forward because it's so baked in currently in the industry. And they did conduct the analysis just a little bit later in the process. But who knows at this point, uh, it, it, it could go any which way. Uh, yet another solar installer is set to go public here in the U.S. Sunrun, one of the early solar leasing pioneers that operates the second biggest portfolio of residential solar systems in the U.S., has filed for a $100 million IPO. Like SolarCity and Vivint before it, the company's S1 gives us a chance to look more closely at financial and market performance, and we will turn to Jigger on this one. Sunrun's got revenues of $198 million higher than SolarCity and Vivint, but it is also losing money at much higher rates. It lost $162.5 million last year versus Solar's 58, 55.8 and Vivint's $28.8 million in losses. What stood out for you as you looked through the S1 jigger? So the interesting thing about the Sunrun S1 have shifted really um, away from just doing leasing and towards doing loans. I think that this is something we've talked about before, but you know the politics here is that Sunrun was one of the most art- backers of leasing to the point where they were sort of anti-loans, anti-PACE financing, anti-lot of things, right? And so I think for them to really show that they're making the switch to loans too, I think makes, you know, gives me a clear glimpse of the future in that perspective. Yeah, but we're still projecting that leases and PPAs are going to dominate the industry. Do you see that differently? Yeah, no, I think that, I think we're on track to you know, loans surpassing leases um, in the next 12 months. And I think, and the reason for that is because I think that we're, you know, finding that this tax equity is not as low cost as it used to be. And Sunrun and SolarCity and others are finding that they can actually make more money. I mean, one of the things in the securitization documents that Sunrun revealed was that their average PPA price was 20 cents a kilowatt hour for their securitization, where Solar Cities has only been 15 cents a kilowatt hour. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is fascinating, you know, going back to our conversation with Adam James, was really around how the utility scale market really is a race to the lowest possible cost, where the residential market really is a race to the highest possible value to customers. Yeah, and Sunrun took a big position on driving down soft costs. Um, They paid for studies. They were a key to pointing out where all those challenges are and working with the Department of Energy to drive those down. I think the Rex Solar purchase was all part of that. Um, They've they've brought in several companies that are going to help drive down those costs. And I think that's increased their value. Uh, Let's go through some of the numbers here. Eric Wessoff, our editor-in-chief, went through the S1 and brought out some interesting stats. So Sunrun has less than half of the installations across 13 states that SolarCity has, the leader in residential installations. Sunrun's got 79,000 solar customers. SolarCity has about 218,000. Sunrun deployed about 430 megawatts cumulative as of March of this year. And uh, in the first quarter of this year, SolarCity installed 
over 150 megawatts. And uh, the company is still losing a lot of money. It has a deficit of $76.8 million as of March, uh, the biggest of any of the residential solar installers. Is that deficit worrisome at all to you, Jigger? Is that the number that we should be looking at, or should we look, be looking at the company's overall growth? Yeah, I think that it's really hard for solar companies um, a year before their IPO for you to look at their losses because you find that the IPO just there's a lot of restatement of old statements. You know, they're trying to clean out the garbage. So one of the things that is fascinating to me about Sunrun, though, is that they really were a pure play platform and. And the markets clearly told them that that wasn't interesting to them and they had to buy REC and other installation partners to be able to have a shot at going public. And, you know, you saw that in the S1 um, with another, you know, transaction before the end. So I, it's, it's, I'm trying to figure out whether pure play platforms actually have the right to go public in the future. How should we think about this in the context of broader clean tech investment? Sunrun is one of three major installers that is now going public. We've seen venture investors lose a lot of money on making upstream investments, but certainly the downstream ones have paid off. Do you see that them going public as a success story? Are you looking at it through that like story arc, or are you looking more closely at the company's financials and, and have questions? Well, Madrone Partners, which owns 7.5% prior to the offering, lost a ton of money on Solyndra. So you know, it's good to see them coming back and making some money on one of their venture capital investments. and. You know, I think one of the things that it, when you think about the solar industry of 2007, 2008, is you're really seeing this being a manufacturer's game. Now with this IPO and the other IPOs before it, this is really a downstream game. And so I think all of the value is really moving downstream where the margins are very tight on the upstream. Yeah, and I would actually love to give a shout out to Lynn Jurek, the CEO. There are not very many female CEOs of solar companies, and she really took this from zero to IPO. It's it's pretty astounding what she's been able to do and how they've been able to drive down their own costs. We'll see if that $100 million offering stands could change. More updates to come. That's the end of the show, and we will now tell you something you do not know. And Jigger, you're up first this week. So at the end of June 30th, uh, we're going to add a second for a leap second. Um, it's a pretty common occurrence, and it messes up with computers and all sorts of other stuff. But But I guess... It happens all the time, and so, I don't know. It's something I didn't know, and uh, I guess it happens all the time. What are you going to do with your extra second? <laughs> Probably send out some of a obnoxious tweet. Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter if I have a, an extra second or not. I'm going to send out obnoxious tweets. <laughs> Catherine, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so um, I get the New Yorker every week and try desperately to read something other than just the movie review. Um, and this week there was a great article by Bill McKibben, and it's um, it was about solar power. It's called Power to the People, and it was um, about how solar is saving regular people money, solar and energy efficiency. And on one hand, I sort of I, I was really glad that it was he's a good writer that he put it in very clear terms. Um, and it was very uh, good storyline, talked a lot about Richard Kaufman and what's going on in New York. Um, and so I was really excited that it was in there. And then on the other hand, I was going, wait a minute, we've known this. <laughs> this is this is one of those things that should be part of have should have been part of the narrative for many, many years that efficiency and solar work. But it's good to see it's in the mainstream. I mean, people have been pushing that for a long time, but it really has been inaccessible to the vast majority of the population. And the conversation is fundamentally different now that now that prices have dropped and people like 
Bill McKibben and others can make that argument and do it with a straight face and start talking to everyone and not just like a certain number of environmentalists or first movers. Yeah. And this was not a piece about climate change. This was about saving money on electric bills. Um, Dave Danielson, the assistant secretary for the Office of Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency at the DOE, spoke at our conference where we had our live podcast, the Grid Edge Live conference the other day. He made an announcement that has not yet been released officially. Over the coming months, the DOE will be allocating between $75 million and $100 million to pre-commercial grid integration technologies through its government labs. The DOE has, has really turned its focus in recent years, in the last year particularly, toward grid optimization and renewable energy integration rather than just pushing the cost down for the renewables technologies themselves, which has been a big focus. And this new initiative is going to bring together different offices at DOE and all the labs in a coordinated way, which is pretty rare, uh, to help bring new sensors, power electronics, resource management techniques to market. And the DOE has a decent amount of money to invest, both through uh, Dr. Danielson's office and through the loan program. And they're just trying to let the industry know that they have money and they want to help. And I get the sense that a lot of people don't realize how much money the DOE has to devote to these types of projects. And they're trying to structure it in a way that makes the investment easier and the project development easier. And, and they're hitting the streets trying to educate people about the kind of resources they have. So if you are working on something in that area or looking for funding uh, or support, I definitely reach out to DOE. They are responsive and they're eager to hear proposals. That's going to do it for the show. For links to the stories we discussed, go to our show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. To connect with us, send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, or simply grab our RSS feed and integrate that into the app of your choice. A big thanks to Renesola for sponsoring the show, and another big thanks to our listeners. Catherine, have a great 4th of July weekend. Anything, anything interesting happening? Um, we're, we may even watch the D.C. fireworks, which is unusual for us, but it should be fun. In D.C.? You're going to go, go brave the crowds? We'll try, probably try to find a high point a little out of town. <laughs> Jigger, are you still with us? I am. I'm down in, I'm going to be down in Turks and Caicos. Oh, enjoy. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we can't patch you in from a podcast from there. I mean, we've got you at an airport, a Starbucks, and a library. We <laughs> might as well get you on a, an island country. Nice. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, we are off next week. Um, in, enjoy your weekends, and uh, we will catch you the week of the 13th. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. <laughs> <laughs>